We'll open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. Today is a day that you've made, and we do rejoice in it. We are glad. And Heavenly Father, we pray as we look at your word that you would use it as an encouragement to us, that we'd remember what we've been spared, that we would remember that we're hidden with Christ in God and that we don't have to hide from him. And uh, Lord, let us never forget that as we persevere in these difficult days. I pray, Heavenly Father, that the church at large would be edified through your words throughout all of America this Sunday and around the world as godly men lift up your scriptures and teach them. And so we pray, Lord, your name would be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last time, recall, we were in the fifth seal as we're working through the book of Revelation. And in the fifth seal, remember that God had used the prayers of the martyrs in order to further judge the unregenerate. In fact, remember the unbelievers were going to be judged by God progressively throughout the book of Revelation for their rebellion and also their mistreatment of believers. In fact, in Revelation 6.10, you had the believers crying out, How long, O Lord, holy and righteous, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood upon those who dwell upon the earth? And what we found out is that throughout the book of Revelation, God will be answering those prayers as he pours his wrath upon the unregenerate. So the fifth seal was really about God using these prayers of the saints to further the wrath that comes upon the unregenerate. Now, as we come to the sixth seal this morning, we're continuing in Revelation 6, we come to a bunch of cosmic disturbances. And so remember, according to Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is not only the creator of all things, but he is also the sustainer of all things. And here he is going to sovereignly take the creation and use it as a tool in which he judges his enemies, those who have rebelled against him. And so that's what we're going to be looking at here this morning. And that's where we open up here in the first couple of verses. Revelation, we'll look at uh, chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. John begins, he says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Wow. Again, what you have is the unraveling of the created order that God has made. Think of it this way. God, as the supreme creator who created all of these things in Genesis 1 through 2, is now, in a sense, reversing the created order, in a sense like he's shaking the cage of his enemies. Now, we're going to see further cosmic disturbances throughout the book of Revelation, but this is the first one that we see thus far. One of the questions we have to wrestle with in this text is how literally do we take these cosmic disturbances? Do we take them literally or figuratively? The second question we're going to be wrestling from this text is when does this occur? Does it occur prior to Daniel's 70th week, within Daniel's 70th week, or after Daniel's 70th week? And I'll show you some theological implications to each of those views. But let's begin with the first question. Should we take this literally or figuratively? And the reason this is an important question to answer is because for many generations you've had in some sense, fine Christian commentators saying that this type of language should surely not be taken literally. Instead, they say it should be taken figuratively. And the reason they would say that is because oftentimes, to be fair, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets do use the sun, moon, and stars figuratively with reference to judgment that came upon Israel, upon Judah, upon Assyria, upon Babylon, etc., Now, let me just give you my take, and I'll explain why. I think these should be taken literally. Okay, now here's why. What we have going on in the Old Testament is always a relationship between what's called the near and the far. What the Old Testament prophets did when they talked about the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, and the stars not shining, is they they were ultimately talking about the future day of the Lord, a day that has never occurred yet in in history, even up into our day, all right? Now, what they would do is they would give near-term 
down payments or foreshadowings of that ultimate day. Okay, so when the Old Testament prophets wrote, they talked about near-term judgments that would have come upon, for example, Babylon. But that was always foreshadowing the ultimate future day of the Lord that would come. And so in the near-term day of the prophets, they were like down payments, as it were. Now, I want to show you an example of that, just so you don't take my word for it. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 13, verses 7 through 11. Isaiah 13, verses 7 through 11. Now, what I'm going to show you here in Isaiah 13, 7 through 11, is judgment that is referring to the future day of the Lord. But what you're going to find then is when Isaiah continues in verses 17 through 22, he switches from the near term, excuse me, from the far term to the near term. Let me give an example. Isaiah 13, 7 through 11, this is the grand day of the Lord that's still in our future. Isaiah, writing on behalf of Yahweh, says, Therefore all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. They, that would be the unregenerate, they will be terrified Pains and anguish will take hold of them. Now, let's stop there for just a moment in verse 8. Does everyone see in verse 8 where it says terrified? And you see also the the terms pains and anguish. Well, right in there in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you have the term odin. Remember? And that was associated as a technical term with the pains, the labor pains that come within the day of the Lord. The reason I cite that is, remember, Paul used that in 1 Thessalonians 5. He talked about the day of the Lord comes like labor pains. Jesus used it in his Olivet Discourse, right? It comes like a thief in the night while they're saying peace and safety. Sudden destruction comes upon them like labor pains upon a woman, okay? So that's where we're getting this understanding in the Gospels and also the New Testament writings of the day of the Lord. It's connected to those labor pains. But notice it continues... He says, they will look at one another in astonishment. Their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord. Here's the direct reference to the day of Yahweh. The day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the whole world. Notice the universal referent. And I think that that's an accurate referent there in the NASB. It's the whole world he's going to judge. He says, for it's evil, and I'll judge the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. So let's just stop there. That's Isaiah 13, 7 through 11. Obviously, Isaiah is talking about this future judgment that's going to be worldwide. Was there ever a universal worldwide judgment in Isaiah's day? No. Now, when you skip down again to verses 17 through 22, Isaiah says, well, by the way, I'm paraphrasing, here's the judgment of the Babylonians that existed in his day at the hands of the Medo-Persians. And so he gives you a near-term judgment that ultimately points forward to that future judgment where the sun, moon, and stars would actually be darkened. So I think that that's how... Old Testament prophecy functions. This, these cosmic disturbances were literally going to happen according to the prophets of old, but they would give you always, whether it be Joel chapter 2, whether it be Isaiah chapter 2, whether it be Hosea chapter 10, they would always be giving you near-term down payments or foreshadowings of that ultimate reality. So I think clearly these things are literal. These are literal cosmic upheavals that will occur in Daniel's 70th week. Now, I just kind of spilled the beans. We'll be wrestling with when it happens, but I, I'll just tell you it happens within the 70th week. Yeah. Brian. The judgment in the day of the Lord, I find it interesting in the Old Testament yeah. how much it talks about that. Not and, and, we haven't even, and Christ hasn't even come on the scene yet with the apostles receiving right. further uh, 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 information. Well said. That's right. It was always on their radar. They're always looking ahead. I remember I had a very godly professor in seminary who said, when the Old Testament prophets look forward, think about them looking at mountain peaks. And from their perspective, they look like they're right next to each other. 
but when you get up close to them, they're maybe hundreds of miles apart. In the same sense, these events look like they're right next to each other, but in fact, they're separated by perhaps thousands of years. And we even see that in 2 Peter 1, that they're wrestling with the timing of these things, the timing when the person in Christ would in fact be revealed. And so they were wrestling with those very doctrines. And that's one of the things I think we as evangelicals have to remember when it comes to the Old Testament. It wasn't just haphazard predictions. These prophets were inspired to teach messianic doctrine, who he would be, what he would do, what he would accomplish. They were teaching the doctrines of Christ in the Old Testament. And that's why Paul could say in 2 Timothy 3.15 to Timothy, he says, you have known the sacred writings from your youth, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord, how could he say that if the Old Testament really wasn't messianic? So it incorporated not only the doctrines of Christ, but also the eschatological fulfillment, his judgments, etc. So I think you're exactly right. Yep. Now, uh, one thing I want to point out in this text, again, how literally do we take it? Now, we said it's not just figurative. We should take this literally. But I want you to see that we do have something called simile here. Now, simile always uses the phrase as or like. Okay, notice all the examples of it here. He says that the sun isn't literally sackcloth, but it became black as sackcloth. Notice the as, it's hos in the Greek, like or as. Notice that the whole moon isn't literally blood, but it became like blood. Everyone see that? Again, hos, so we're not reading that into it, that's what the text says, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Notice it says the stars of the sky fell to earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, etc. So all of those are hosts, as. That's a simile. Now, the scriptures can say real things, literal things, by using simile, because what we have here is something called phenomenological language. Has anybody ever heard of that term? Phenomenological, I know Bob has... Phenomenological simply means the way it appears. We hear of phenomena. You say, well, it appeared this way or that way. Let me give you an example. Let's say I said I saw an airplane crash, and the newspaper reporter comes out, and they said, well, what did you see? And I said, well, I saw this airplane, and it was on fire like a torch. Now, if you press that too far and said, well, he thinks that the airplane was a torch, well, that's not getting the point. The point is, obviously, I'm saying it was on fire, wasn't I? But I'm saying something real. I'm saying this airplane was on fire. The same thing applies here. John is saying real things. He's using phenomenological language, and it's completely accurate. For example, how many here write a letter to your local weatherman at your local news station when he says sunrise tomorrow is going to be at 6.04 a.m.? Do you say, well, come on, what are you, a geocentrist? Do you think actually that the sun rotates around the earth? No. Obviously, our weatherman knows his astronomy. He knows that the earth is rotating. He's simply using phenomenological language. So the Bible does the same thing, but it's saying real things. The cosmos is going to be shaken by Jesus Christ, who is, again, both the creator and the sustainer of all things. And he's going to be using the cosmos for a tool of his vengeance here. Okay, so I think we have to take this very literally. Now, To go beyond that, I'm not going to get into the physics and metaphysics is what's going on. The one thing I'll say in verse 13, notice it talks about the stars of the sky fell to the earth. I think we should understand that as comets because the same term in Greek can be used interchangeably for both comets and stars. Obviously, if a star fell to the earth, you would have a devastated earth. Okay, And so realize that the stars, they appear to be stars, but the term can be used interchangeably for comets. So if I were writing my own version, it would say, and the comets of the sky fell to the earth, okay? And we know that because when we get to the fourth trumpet judgment, we have a third of the stars don't shine their light. Well, how can they not shine forth their light if they fell to the earth, that sort of idea? So we know that that term can be used interchangeably. Now, let's come to the next question. It's very important we ask, when do these cosmic disturbances occur? And the reason this is important is notice here in Joel chapter 2, and I, I, by the way, this is a very important text related to Pentecost. Someday we'll unpack that whole thing as it's related to Pentecost. But for the sake of time, let me just read the relevant text for our purposes. 
Joel chapter 2, verses 30 through 32, Joel wrote this about 800 years prior to Christ. He said, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now again, this is appropriated by Peter at Pentecost. But for our purposes, what we're concerned with is notice in verse 31, this highlighted red portion, it talks about the same phenomena that John sees at the sixth seal. But notice what Joel says is that the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, that seems to then give a precursor that is something to look for prior to the coming day of the Lord. Now, I've labored very hard to say there are no precursors prior to the day of the Lord. The Apostle Paul and Jesus both say that the day of the Lord comes like a thief that is without warning. So how can you have something that gives you warning and yet the claim that there is no warning at the same time in the same relationship? That would obviously be a violation of the law of non-contradiction. Therefore, we have to wrestle with how do we reconcile it. Well, there's two ways. The first way is notice what I have bolded in black, before and come. In the Hebrew, before is la pane. There's a preposition, la. Pane means before the face. La actually means before. Pane means face. So literally is before the face of the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The term comes is bow. Now, what's very interesting is in some texts in the Old Testament, now they're rare, sometimes that combination of what you have before and comes here, la pane bow, sometimes that combination can mean instead of before it comes, it can mean before it passes away before it finishes its process. Okay, let me give you one example. Turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel 3, 35. 2 Samuel 3, 35. As you're turning there, I'll get a quick drink here. 2 Samuel 3, 35. Now here you have David lamenting and mourning Abner's death. Abner, remember, was the commander of Saul's army. Uh, he ends up making really peace with David, but Joab ends up murdering him, really out of probably spite. And so here David is mourning over Abner. 2 Samuel 3.35, it says, Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was still day. But David vowed, saying, May God do so to me and more also, if I taste bread or anything else before the sun goes down. Notice the phrase, before the sun goes down. That's the identical phrase that you have here. If I can find my pointer. Before and comes. But notice in 2 Samuel 3.35, it's not before the sun comes up, but it's before it passes down or goes away or finishes its course. That's the idea. So, it's possible to render, verse 31, that the sun would be turned into darkness and the moon and blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord finishes its course. That's possible. Now, I would say that that's probably still unlikely. I think the vast majority of the cases do have it, just as the NASB here has it. So there's a second option, which I think is much more compelling. And that is, notice where it says the great and awesome day of the Lord. That is referring to what I would call the narrow day of the Lord. Remember, the day of the Lord can be thought of in the broad sense and in the narrow sense. Okay, and it's used interchangeably. Most often it's referring to the broad sense. Now, here's what I mean by that. When I asked my grandpa, think of this analogy, I'd say, Grandpa, what was the cost of gasoline in your day? Well, I wasn't referring to a 24-hour period. I wanted to know, broadly speaking, how much did you have to pay in gasoline throughout your early life. And he'd say, ah, oh, 15 cents or whatever. But I remember asking him, where were you the day that John Kennedy was murdered and, and killed? And he would tell me what, where he was. He remembered it. But that I'm referring to a 24-hour day. 
Okay, so we use day sometimes referring to a broad period of time and sometimes referring to just a 24-hour period. The Bible does the same thing. What's very interesting is that phrase great and awesome is used only one other time in the entire Bible. It's used in Malachi 4.5. And I think what's being referred to here is the very narrow day, the 24-hour period, which is unique unto history because it is the very day that the Messiah comes and sets his feet at the Mount of Olives and fights for Israel as a warrior does in the day of battle. Now, how can I assert that? Because of the context of Joel itself. Turn your Bibles to Joel chapter 3. I want you to see what's directly connected to this prophecy. I want you to see that this is connected to that unique 24-hour period in which the Messiah returns and fights against his enemies. So I'm going to have you look at Joel chapter 3. We'll look at verses 1 through 2, and then we'll skip to verses 9 through 16. So this is Joel chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Here's what the Lord says. He says, For behold, in those days and at that time... Now let's stop there. That links us right to this, what we have on the screen, because it's the very next verse. Does everyone see that? So we have a timing indicator. For behold, in those days and at that time. So now we're linked back to here that whatever he's going to describe is occurring when he's talking about the sun being turned into darkness and the moon into blood. He says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, let's stop there for just a moment with the valley of Jehoshaphat. Where is that? Well, I think more than likely the valley of Jehoshaphat is in what's called the Kidron Valley. Okay, that's the valley that is just to the east of Jerusalem, between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. It's right there. Now, Jehoshaphat means Yahweh is judge. Shophet is judge. Yahweh is obviously God's covenant name. So what happens is at the end of time, we see this in Zechariah 14, I'll turn to that later, is all these nations are going to be brought around Jerusalem. They're going to attack it, but God is going to intervene at this valley. It's his valley of decision where he judges his enemies. And what's interesting to me is the world will have rejected Jesus. Jesus' name, Yeshua, means Yahweh is salvation. So because they rejected Yahweh as salvation, they get Yahweh as the judge. And that's what happens in this last battle. So that's what's being described. This is at the Kidron Valley. He says, Then I will enter into judgment with them over there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. Verse 9, proclaim, now I'm skipping down to verse 9 for the sake of time. Proclaim this among the nations, prepare a war, rouse the mighty men. So here's God luring all the nations against Jerusalem. He says, let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. That's the opposite of what Messiah does in the millennial kingdom. Let the weak say, I'm a mighty warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Yahweh, your mighty ones. Let the nations be roused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in this sickle, for the harvest is ripe. i got to scroll here. I can find my cursor. I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in this sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Now listen to this, verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Now let me stop there. When it says the day of the Lord is near, it doesn't mean that it's not present. It doesn't mean like, well, it's just at hand. It means it's imminent with them. It's upon them. That's the imagery that he's... It's like uh, if your dad is with you at the ball game. It's with them. The day of the Lord is upon them. That's the idea there. Now he continues, he says, The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble, just like the earthquake that we read about. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. So again, I think what's being described there is that unique 24-hour day where the Messiah returns. Okay, and so that's what Joel is referring to here in Joel chapter 2, verses 30 through 32. Yeah, Bob. 
<laughs> on this value of decision, who's making the decision and on what basis? Yeah, it's Yahweh is making the yeah, decision. Yeah, I wrote about that. Yeah. See, this is the proof text for Billy Graham. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, Decision Magazine. Oh. And then, you know, the sinner is deciding whether God's okay. Okay. <laughs> and so I wrote an article about that. I mentioned that, that, no, the judge is Yahweh. Exactly. And it's like the judge went into his chambers to consider all of the facts and evidence. Yeah. Isn't that what happens? Exactly. Comes out with a decision. That's right. And for all these sinners, it's bad, right? That's right. It's very bad. Yeah. So it isn't, we've got a role reversal in evangelicalism yeah. where God is on trial right. and the sinner's the judge. Right. But the opposite is we should be quaking in our boots. Right. Because I wouldn't want to be on trial. By Yahweh. And all the evidence is against me. Amen. And the judge is in his chambers. I'd be sweating. What would you feel like? <laughs> Very This well is bad said. when that judge comes out. So yes. it might be a reason to repent. I got an interesting email <laughs> yeah. from a guy who was a NASA engineer or something. Yeah. He somehow read my article and who's a personal friend of Billy Graham. Oh. And I. He said, are you saying that Billy Graham is wrong all those years? Yeah. <laughs> and I wrote back, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that verse means what, it, what yeah, it means. That's right. And I think it's more powerful if we preach it for what it says. Exactly. And I thought the guy would be mad at me, but I got a nice email back. He says, okay, I understand. Thank you. Wow. Don't you love that? He sees the data and the, data, the scripture is what's inspired, not uh, Billy Graham or anyone else. Well said. Yeah, thank you, Bob. Yeah, well said. Yeah, the decision is not made by human beings here. It's irrevocably made by Yahweh, and there's no changing course. Yeah, very well said. So, again, I think that's what's being referred to. Now, why does this matter? Well, some claim that the day of the Lord, that's D-O-L up on the screen, some claim that the day of the Lord begins at the sixth seal. So think about their rationale. They would say, well, look, at the sixth seal, you have the sun, moon, and stars being darkened, and Joel said that, the sun, moon, and stars would be darkened before the day of the Lord. But what I'm claiming... Now, remember, whenever I put this diagram up, this is the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, the last seven years, prior to the Messianic kingdom. This is the end of it, right? What I'm saying is Joel chapter 2 is referring to when Christ comes down at the end of the 70th week. So what we can conclude then is the sixth seal is not the same as that judgment. In fact, listen to what Jesus says here. Oops, I forgot to put the Joel quote up there. Again, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So again, their logic is, hey, at the sixth seal, this has to happen before the day of the Lord. Therefore, the day of the Lord can't happen until after the sixth seal. That would be the reasoning of, for instance, the pre-wrath and some other uh, mid-trib proponents. Okay? But let me just show you Jesus, what he talks about regarding the sun, moon, and stars being darkened in the Olivet Discourse. This is Matthew 24, 29 through 31. Now, up into verse 29, Jesus has laid out the entire purview of the 70th week, the last seven years. Well, when he gets to verse 29, he says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 30, it says, and then the sign, remember they're asking, what sign do you give us? Now here's a major sign. The sign of the Son of Man himself will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man. There's a reference to Daniel 7. The Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Verse 31, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Notice in verse 31, that's not a reference to the rapture, what that's a reference to is Isaiah 27, 13. The only passage in the entire Old Testament that uses gadol shofar, which means great trumpet, the only passage in the entire Hebrew Bible that has that is Isaiah 27, 13, where God promised that he would bring in all of Israel into the nation as he brings in his messianic kingdom. Okay, so that's what's being referred to. So certainly... Jesus here is referring to what happens after the last seven years. In fact, notice the phrase, very important. It says, Jesus said, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, two important facts come from that phrase. First of all, 
the term immediately, uthos, certainly limits any notion that what Jesus was referring to beforehand in verses 5 all the way to verse 28, he, he's really eliminating any possibility that he's referring to the church age. Okay, now I want you to think about that for just a moment. Many scholars believe that all of the things that Jesus describes, the earthquakes, famines, pestilence, all those things are things that are occurring now in the church age. Are you with me? Well, why would Jesus say immediately after the tribulation of those days? Because obviously after one age comes another age. You don't have to use the term immediately. But immediately shows that he's dealing with a smaller time frame. He's talking about the tribulation of those days. And we had proven in our Olivet Discourse discussion that those days was replete with information about the 70th week of Daniel. So what Jesus is saying is immediately, there's no break, immediately after the 70th week has run its course, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky. Okay, that's what he's saying there. And so Jesus here is explaining that there will be cosmic disturbances immediately after the 70th week. That's the second point that we have to come away with. Yeah. Okay. I'm on the same page as you when we talk about the day of the Lord and the great and awesome day of the sure. Lord being the whole seven-year period versus the day that Jesus comes in on the cloud. Yep. Okay, but there is a lot of people in in the uh, uh, Christian world yeah. that would say, and, and I don't mean to muddy the waters here, sure. but, but there are some that would say that there's a third option. And that third option would be rapture, gap, and then what happens prior to the seven-year day of the Lord. Follow me? I was wondering if you could address that. And also, there's a lot of talk. You you hear about these, a lot of books and a lot of speakers, and and, uh, there's a bunch coming up concerning these blood moons. Okay? So they would use that in conjunction with what's going to happen here uh, in September. Yep. Okay. Exactly. Well, let's take the second first. Regarding the sun, yeah, this, like, exactly, regarding this very thing, a lot of people are pointing to the blood moons as evidence that perhaps the day of the Lord is near. Well, what's interesting is what Jesus is saying is right here, these are coming after the day of the Lord has begun, obviously. Okay, does that make sense? So we have no precursor there. Now, your second question was about, uh, or your first question was about this idea, what was it, the... um, Oh, a gap, a gap between the rapture. Yeah, you know, we don't know how much of a gap, um, but here's what I would say is it has to be very small. And the reason why is because of the analogies that Jesus gives with the day of Noah. He does in Luke 17 and also in Matthew 24. Um, For example, he says, in the days of Noah, it will be just like, I'm sorry, for in the days of the Son of Man, it will be just like the days of Noah. Okay, so what happens in the days of Noah is you have the righteous rescued, right, Noah's family, And then what happens is judgment came. So that's the model. In fact, he even uses, I think in Luke 17, the day, the day of that, the fact that the rescue happened, you had the wrath of God poured out. So in both instances, in Matthew 24 and in Luke 17, when Jesus talks about this coming rescue of the righteous, Noah's family, Lot's family, the wrath happens immediately after that. So I wouldn't see much of a break between the rapture uh, the rapture is really the institution of God's wrath because the people are rescued. Remember Revelation 3.10? Because you've been faithful to keep my word, I'll keep you from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world to test those who, who dwell upon the earth. I don't see much of a gap there. So I just don't see much merit in that. In fact, I think I'll clear up some things for you here regarding the timing of this. And I want to show you in detail that there's a lot of different cosmic disturbances that occur within the 70th week. It's not just at the sixth seal. So... Again, we have certainly the sixth seal that we just read about, the sun, moon, and stars, and you have this great earthquake. But notice you also have another great cosmic disturbance at the fourth trumpet. Now, that's sometime within Daniel's 70th week as well. In fact, turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8, verse 12. This is the fourth trumpet, and you're going to see another cosmic disturbance. So the sixth seal is not the end of these. Revelation 8.12. 
says, The fourth angel sounded, so here's the fourth trumpet judgment, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. So again, you have a cosmic disturbance that comes later within Daniel's 70th week. And then when you come to the fifth trumpet, you have another one. Notice Revelation 9, verses 1 through 2. It says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star, excuse me, I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. And now this more than likely isn't the cosmic event here, because the star is more than likely an angel. But notice it says, And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. So again, the sun is obscured. Now that's just by smoke, but again, it appears that the sun, think about it, that's a lot of smoke. <laughs> if people around the world are saying the sun is darkened, that's a pretty significant cosmic event. You know, if I light a fire in my backyard, you think the sun, people in, are people in Africa are going to say, what happened to the sun? If Eric, Eric must have his barbecue going, all right? <laughs> No, this is significant so that the whole world sees it. So that's, again, a, a cosmic event, I would say. Now, you see another one in Revelation 16, verses 8 through 9. This is at the fourth bowl. Now, remember, when you're done with the bowls, the wrath of God continues, really, all the way through the millennium. And then the, the saved, or I should say up until the millennium, and then you have salvation, right? So the seventh bowl opens up indefinitely. Well, the fourth bowl, this is Revelation 16, 8 through 9, It says, the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Okay. Now, what we have, very interestingly enough, is Jesus said in Matthew 24, 29, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. Well, that occurs at the very end of Daniel's 70th week. Does everyone see that? And so we have many different cosmic disturbances, not just one. Okay? So clearly, what we have to understand is the sixth seal, according to Joel chapter 2, yes, it happens before the great and terrible day of the Lord, or great and awesome, that's the 24-hour period before Christ comes, but it does not come before the broad day of the Lord, which begins at the inception of Daniel's 70th week. Okay? Now, let me give you one more text that ties in the Joel 2 verses 30 through 31, that the sun, moon, and stars would happen before the great and terrible day of the Lord, which is that 24-hour period where Christ returns. Turn to Zechariah 14. I want you to see the timing of this. Zechariah 14, we'll look at verses 3 through 4, and then also verse 6. Again, Zechariah 14, verses 3 through 4, and then verse 6. Zechariah 14, 3 through 4, it says, Then the Lord, now remember all the nations in the first couple of verses were brought to surround Jerusalem. And then he says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. So let me stop there. That's the identical thing that was described in Joel chapter 3. All the nations surround Jerusalem, and then there's this battle. So we now have the same time period. Notice he says, in that day, verse 4, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. Now let's stop there. When we look at Acts chapter 1, remember Jesus ascends? Where does he ascend from? The Mount of Olives, doesn't he? And remember, the disciples are looking skyward, and the angel says, men of Galilee, why are you gazing skyward? This same Jesus is coming back in like manner. So where is he going to set his feet? On the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is Yahweh, and he's the one who's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives on this unique day. So it says it's in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Now skip to verse 6. Notice what it says in verse 6. In that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle. So it's describing a cosmic disturbance, just as it did in Joel chapter 2 and Joel chapter 3. And again, that's the very 24-hour day, the day of the Lord in which Jesus returns. And again, in our schematic here, that would occur right here. And so that's what Jesus is referring to here in Matthew 24, 29. Okay? So again, the point is you don't have 
anything that occurs, sun, moon, and stars, prior to the breaking out of the broad day of the Lord, but you do at the narrow day of the Lord, the 24-hour day. Does that make sense to everyone? All right, now, for the sake of time, let's move back to the text here, back to Revelation 6, 15 through 17, where we see sinful mankind hides from God. Verses 15 through 17, it says, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Now, let me just stop there for a moment. Notice this is everyone. That's what John is describing. The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich, these are the power brokers of the day. They're the ones who have positions of authority. They're the military commanders. Sometimes in third world nations, those are the same things. The politicians are the military uh, commanders, right? We have all the wealthy, everyone, but even the small. It says every slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. So what is being described here is judgment that comes upon every person who was an unbeliever. These are, remember the phrase used five times in Revelation, those who dwell upon the earth? The saints had just prayed, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood upon those who dwell upon the earth? Well, these are those who dwell upon the earth. That's who it is. It's not referring to believers. It's referring to the unregenerate. Verse 16, it says, And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now they even recognize that this is the wrath of Christ. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, by the way, that that question that's asked, who is able to stand in verse 17, that's answered right away in Revelation 7. It's the 144,000 Jews that are sealed by God that are able to stand during the days of tribulation. So John gives us an answer to that question immediately. Now, broadly speaking, all who trust in Christ are able to stand ultimately. Okay, but... In John's narrative, the way he's bringing the story forth, he wants to want you to understand that it's the 144,000 that are sealed by God that can stand as the wrath is being poured out. Okay? Now, one of the things I want to point out here in this text is notice it says that these hid themselves. All of these unbelievers hid themselves from God. The term hid themselves, hid, comes from krupto. Krupto is a verb that's very interestingly used of Adam and Eve hiding themselves from God after they had sinned in Genesis chapter 3. And so we have to understand is this is kind of bringing everything full circle. At the beginning of time, men and women sin against God and they hide from him. Now, after God has poured forth this beautiful plan of salvation and they've rejected it, they hide from him once again. Instead of repenting and saying, wow, Lord, look at what you've provided for our salvation, they still hide from God. And so the record of sinful man is a record of hiding from God. And we see it all the way through the Old and the New Testament. For example, remember in Exodus 3, God reveals himself to Moses. And Moses asked the question, who should I say that sent me to the Israelites? And he says, I am the God of your father, this is Exodus 3, 6, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then it says, then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Think about Peter in Luke chapter 5, verse 8. Do you remember when Jesus says, hey, fellows, why don't you cast your nets on that side of the boat? And reading between the lines, you get this idea that these disciples are probably somewhat annoyed because they're professional fishermen. And they're probably thinking, Lord, can't you just give us a little credit? We know how to fish. But when they haul in this record number of fish, it dawns afresh upon Peter who this Jesus is that's with them. And in Luke 5, 8, he says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. He doesn't want to be in the presence of Jesus. He wants to hide. That's the way it is with sinful mankind. They want to hide from God. The alternative to hiding from God, and by the way, it doesn't work out. You can't hide from him ultimately. (laughs) You'll see that as this progresses. It doesn't work out so hot. The only remedy to hiding from God, and he'll find you, is to be hidden 
with Christ. Amen. To be hidden. And by the way, that's what Bob was teaching us back in Colossians 3.3. Let me just cite that passage for you. Colossians 3.3. Oops, I can't find my cursor here. Colossians 3.3, Paul said, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So when you trusted upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you died with him, and your life is hidden with him. And so at the end of the day, the big choice for humanity is will you hide from God or will you hide in Christ? Will you hide from the wrath of the Lamb or will you be hidden with him from the wrath that is to come? And that's the great choice that's before all of humanity. Let me just give the gospel very quickly here. The, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the good news. And the good news, I always say, makes sense in light of the bad news. The bad news is that this wrath is real. It's being denied by liberal scholars today. The wrath of God is poo-pooed as irrelevant. No, it is the most relevant thing that you can be spared from. If you go to a church and they're not talking about how to be spared from the wrath, they're telling you irrelevant things. Think about these people that are hiding from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, do you think that they're worried about their relationship with their teenage son? Are they worried about their flat tire? Or are they worried about their grass being too long or the fact that they can't make their mortgage payment or all of the other problems? And by the way, those are important things. I'm not poo-pooing those things. But what I'm saying is, comparatively, compared to being spared from the wrath of God, what's more relevant? I remember Bob had to tell people at a seminary classroom. He asked the question, since, whence, since when... Has it been irrelevant to be spared from the wrath of God? And it hushed the whole class because they were talking about being relevant. And what being relevant means in the church today is you don't talk about Christ, don't talk about his doctrines, don't talk about the gospel, don't talk about what the scriptures talk about. Give us practical hips, helps on how to get us through our problems in daily life. Well, the biggest problem everyone has is the wrath of the Lamb. And again, at the end of the day, we're either going to be hiding from him or we're going to be hidden with him. Now, one other passage I want all of you to turn to is Isaiah chapter 2, verses 8 through 12 and verse 19, because this may be, if any text is the backdrop, it's probably this one. Isaiah chapter 2, of course, talks about this time when the Lord is going to be established in his kingdom. But he talks about how he's going to make this judgment come upon the whole world and how the unregenerate will hide. And so all this is being stated 700 years prior to Christ's coming. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 8 through 12, and then I'll hit verse 19. Isaiah 2, 8 through 12, talking about now, specifically it's, it's Israel, but he branches really into the whole world as well. He says their land has also been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. So the common man has been humbled and the man of importance has been abased. But do not forgive them. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of his majesty. Well, that's exactly what we have going on now in Revelation chapter 6. Verse 11, Isaiah chapter 2, he continues. He says, The proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. He's talking about the lofty of men, that they'll be abased. Verse 19, he says, Men will go into caves of the rocks and into the holes of the ground before the terror of Yahweh and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. Again, Jesus is the creator the sustainer, and he is going to use the cosmos and the whole world as an instrument of his vengeance upon those who do not flee to Jesus Christ in order to be hidden with Christ in God. And that's what we have depicted here at the sixth seal. Now, there's another issue I want to alert, alert you to, and that's in verse 17. The question that the unregenerate ask is, for, they say, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Well, notice the declaration the great day of their wrath has come. Now, remember Bob has talked a lot about in Acts how you have indicators of reliable witnesses. 
For example, when it says that the Holy Spirit came upon someone, you can say, hey, you know what, we should listen to them. Realize the people who are declaring that the wrath of God has come are not exactly reliable witnesses. They're the unregenerate, okay? However, that doesn't mean, just because, you know the old saying, even a broken clock is right twice a day? That doesn't mean that they're wrong here. But we have to understand, what do they mean when they say that the wrath has come? Now, some will claim, this is an aorist verb, the term come, and they'll say, well, that aorist means that this type of wrath that God is pouring out is just beginning. That's what they call an ingressive aorist. Okay, or some call it a proleptic aorist. Now, what's a proleptic aorist? A proleptic aorist is used, for example, in Revelation chapter 11 when it's referring to something that has not happened, but it's so certain to happen that it speaks as if it already has. In Revelation 11, there's a proleptic aorist that talks about the reign of Christ. Now, in the grand scheme of things, when you get to Revelation 11, Jesus hasn't returned yet to reign but it's so certain it's spoken in the aorist as if it's already occurred, okay? But what I'm going to show you is, no, more than likely what we have here is what's called a constative aorist. And what that simply means is something that occurred in the past. And more than likely it's finally dawned on the unregenerate that all of the things that they'd experienced through the first five seals, remember you get sword, famine, pestilence, wild beast, they wiped out a quarter of mankind. Remember the, the worst we've ever experienced in World War II was a reduction in 3% of our population, right, in World War II? Well, this is going to be eight times worse. And so finally now the unregenerate realize, well, this has been the wrath of God all along. And so they're kind of coming to this late, but they're right. This is the wrath of God. So what I want to wrestle with is understanding this heiress for has come. Again, it's at the sixth seal, and there's really two options. Oops, the first option is again the ingress of errors. Now everyone knows what ingress means. Think about fighter pilots talk about ingressing into a target. That's you're entering into it. Well then after they enter into it, they want to figure out how they're going to egress. How are they going to get out of there? So ingress means it's coming into being. Okay? The same thing would be the idea of a future heiress, the idea that this is something that's going to occur in the future. So for example, the pre-wrath proponents would say the wrath of God is just starting now at the sixth seal. Okay, and that's how we should understand that aorist. Now, here's the problem with that. When we look at the Greek language, the aorist, normally when it's in the aorist active indicative, the active indicative, it's referring to things that occur in the past. The one thing about the aorist is it doesn't worry about defining whether the action is ongoing or whether the action is complete. The aorist doesn't care. It simply, in the indicative, wants to tell you that generally something happened in the past. That's the default position of the aorist, okay? So that's the second option. And the second option, if this is a constitutive aorist, which I think it certainly is, that's the default position of it, what that says then is that the wrath of God is not beginning at the sixth seal, but it has come. It's something that occurred in the past. In other words, look at the screen. They finally realize that what they've been undergoing is the wrath of God. And I think certainly that's how the aorist is being used here. Why? Because you have to have a contextual clue to tell you, look at number one, ingressive aorist or a future proleptic, those are special cases. And you have to have some contextual key to tell you that you have a special case. For example, in Revelation 11, you have an aorist talking, again, about the reign of Christ, but you know it can't be talking about the past because Christ hasn't come to reign yet. So it has to be referring to a proleptic aorist, meaning it's so certain to come that it can be spoken of as, it, as if it's already occurred. But you don't have any of those contextual clues here. So certainly we have to go back to the default and say, no, it's a constitutive aorist. In fact, listen to what Robert Thomas says about this. He says, some contextual feature, this is Robert Thomas in his excellent commentary on the book of Revelation, some contextual feature must be present to indicate Clearly, these exceptional usages, that would be the exceptional usages up in number one. And he says, no such feature exists in the context of the sixth seal. In fact, we've had the opposite. We've seen examples in the, remember the fourth seal? We had sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts. Well, that was the wrath of God in Ezekiel 14.21. Certainly, it was the wrath of God in the book of Revelation. 
And so what the unregenerate have finally come to the conclusion is that, yes, this is the wrath of God. So don't be fooled. Don't think that, no, the wrath of God is just starting. No, even the unregenerate finally understand, and that's why they hide from the Lamb who's on the throne. So with that, well, boy, we, almost, we got this done in time. I can't believe it. It helps to limit the slides to eight. Now, does anybody have any questions or comments? Yeah, Tom. We'll wait uh, for the microphone. Where does uh, Romans 1 uh, fit into this as far as the wrath? Because I really think that that's what's going on in the U.S. today. Just God has given over to Excellent all of that and, and with our, um, uh, ju- just allowing our, our leaders within this country to you know, yep. come, have it come to pass. So where does it fit in? Yeah, excellent question. You're thinking of Romans 1.18, where it says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Let's everyone turn your Bibles to Romans 1.18. What I want you to see as we turn there, what's very interesting about this wrath that's per- currently being revealed is what it leads to. When you read the rest of Romans 1, it leads to hardening. Let me show you. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 19, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now, what's interesting, he goes into verse 20, he says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are all without excuse. So the created order has given it to man to know the divine attributes of God so that they're without excuse. So that's the first thing we have to conclude in Romans 1.20 is that there's not a single... No one can say, well, there's an innocent aborigine who never heard the gospel. Well, it's true he never heard the gospel, but he didn't respond to the light that he was given through creation, and therefore he's guilty even in that. So, but notice it keeps going on. Like, for instance, in verse 24, now this is directly related to the wrath that's being poured out in verse 18. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. So the wrath that's being poured out currently results in a hardening heart, a hardened heart. A hardened heart that instead of worshiping the creator, it worships the creation. Now, what's very interesting is that hardening is a form of God's wrath because it prepares us for the eschatological day of wrath. In fact, turn ahead to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, he starts to talk about this future wrath that's going to come. Notice in verse 5, he says... But because of your hard heart, now they have hard heart. That was God's wrath currently. God hardened their hearts because they worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. So he hardened their hearts. And he says now in verse 5 of chapter 2, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteousness judgment will be revealed. So what's interesting is throughout the New Testament, Tom, remember, um, for instance, John the Baptist says to the, the Pharisees, he said, who told you brood of vipers to flee from the wrath to come? The, the actual experiencing of God's punishment where he throws us, for instance, in the lake of fire or he pours this wrath out in the 70th week of Daniel, the actual experiencing of God's judgment in that sense is always put off into the eschatological day, the beginning of the day of the Lord. But the wrath that you're referring to in Romans 1.18 is God's hardening human hearts so that he gives them the desires of their heart so that they're storing up this wrath for the day of wrath. Bob made an interesting comment once. He said that term storing up literally means storing up with interest. So it's not just that they're you know, literally stacking up the wrath. They're accruing it with interest. It's exponential. So I hope that, that answers the question. So the current wrath right now is a hardening, but the experiencing of God's judgment is still in the future. Yeah, excellent. Well, we're out of time. Let me just uh, end with, oh, yeah, Scott. I just want to make everybody aware that uh, how, how long do you think uh, Eric's been doing the revelation? It's, it's actually uh, it was a year ago last 
December you started. Oh, wow. That's a long time. So um, I have uh, available, uh, anyone who would be interested, uh, a uh, disc of the first 22 installments of Revelations. And um, maybe just raise your hand if you'd like one of those. Uh, I'll make I'll make a dozen or two. <laughs> <laughs> you got, I'll have those available for you next week. All right, thank you, Scott. Thanks for all the hard work you do with those CDs. Well, we'll uh, end with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that we've been hidden in Christ, and we don't have to worry about this coming wrath. We do pray for our loved ones and our friends that don't know you, Lord. We do pray for opportunities to give the gospel and to preach that Christ is the only way to salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would prepare hearts before us and minds, that you would create fertile ground in them so that we can proclaim your gospel and that it would be believed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.